You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Becoming a published author is a common dream not everyone can achieve. It takes hard work, determination, and a healthy dose of luck. For many writers, a little friendly help can go a long way, even if it comes from the strangest of places. Pearl was born in Mound City, Illinois, in 1833, but her family packed up and moved to Texas before she was a year old. Pearl was not someone who enjoyed school. She almost never picked up a book, and when her classwork got to be too tough, she shut down completely and just stayed home. Pearl also lacked direction. She wanted to sing for a living and didn't care about much else. Her parents moved again when she was 14, this time to St. Louis, Missouri, and Pearl started to take her dream a little more seriously. School was a non-starter for her, but she dove headfirst into piano and voice lessons. And it seems she had a talent for both. A career in music seemed like a viable future for her, so when she got a little older, she moved back to Illinois for more advanced vocal training. From there, she got a job working at a music company to make ends meet. At 24, Pearl met a man named John Howard Curran, and the two soon got married. Neither of them were big readers, but they enjoyed the occasional game of cards and lived a happy life together. Around July of 1912, though, something changed in Pearl. She met a woman who had always wanted to become an author. Her name was Patience, and Pearl knew that she could help her. Despite having a limited education and no prior interest in reading or writing, Pearl transcribed the woman's dictations onto the page. They worked together for hours at a time, word by word, as the beautiful prose took shape. Over the course of 30 years, Pearl and Patience wrote at least seven novels, as well as countless poems and short stories. Patience seemed to have a vast knowledge of other languages, different types of plants, and other esoteric topics, and she passed that knowledge on to Pearl, who was only too happy to assist. The two became so popular, folks used to visit Pearl at her home to watch as she and Patience worked out the new story or poem. Among those in attendance were the family of Hadley Richardson, Ernest Hemingway's first wife. Critics hailed Patience's writing as vivid and descriptive. The editor of the literary journal The Mirror became so enamored with her, he practically fell in love with her. He might have married her, too, if he had been able to see her. Unfortunately, only Pearl was able to communicate with Patience because the talented writer had died in 1694. You see, on that fateful summer night in 1912, when Pearl claimed to have met Patience, she and her good friend Emily Hutchings had actually taken out a talking board to communicate to Emily's late father, who had recently passed away, because Emily wished to speak with him one last time. It took several attempts over many nights, but finally a message came through. But the message it spelled out did not come from Emily's father. 
Many moons ago I lived, it said, and again I come. Patience Worth is my name. Except Patience hadn't come to talk to Emily. She had chosen to speak through Pearl, who wrote down the spirit's messages one letter at a time with the help from the talking board. As news of Pearl's literary seances traveled throughout her neighborhood, folks came to sit in her parlor and talk to Patience. They'd ask her questions, and she would write them poems about the topics of their choice. Pearl's husband, John, also took copious notes during each session. If Patience used a word that he didn't know, he would consult his encyclopedia for a definition. Of course, neighbors weren't the only people interested in Patience and Pearl. Scholars, therapists, historians, and other academics wanted to better understand the source of such literary skill. And all kinds of answers were offered up. Pearl was channeling her unconscious mind, or that the talents of her ancestors had been passed down to her. Charles Corey, who headed up the philosophy department at Washington University, concluded that Patience was nothing more than one of Pearl's alternate personalities. But none of these people had ever sat with Pearl or studied her directly. Their deductions came from anecdotal evidence provided by news articles and secondhand accounts. The truth is, only one man ever got to sit down with Pearl. Walter Prince, the head of the American Society for Psychical Research. Prince wasn't a man to be trifled with. He had previously worked to expose psychic frauds alongside none other than Harry Houdini. Anyone studied by Walter Prince was inevitably found to be a fake. And yet, despite the odds against her, Pearl allowed Prince to watch. He read her husband's notes, he interviewed her loved ones, and he attended her writing sessions. And when all was said and done, he declared Pearl to be the real deal. He had found no reason to believe Patience was anything other than what her medium had claimed her to be, a spirit communicating with the world of the living from beyond the grave. Even today, the debate over Pearl's authenticity lives on. The anti-spiritualism camp still considers her a fraud, while her supporters want desperately to believe we can communicate with the world beyond our own. But maybe we'll eventually solve the mystery. After all, we have news articles, psychological analysis, and her husband's own notes from all her sessions. Perhaps, someday, we'll be able to piece the truth together. All it might take is a little patience. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time. Your time, not just to go back to school, 
but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Beneath the ocean's calm surface lives a world brimming with life. From majestic blue whales to fearsome great white sharks, there exists a delicate and rich ecosystem of animals and plants unlike anything on land. Over the millennia, that life has evolved and adapted to survive a changing ocean landscape. But there are still traces of its history out there, and we might have come face to face with that history in 1977. The Zuyuomaru was a Japanese fishing trawler sailing just off the coast of New Zealand. On April 25th, it picked up a large, unidentified carcass that was pale and decomposing. It had been discovered about 900 feet down, much deeper than a creature of that size should have been. None of the men on the boat could figure out what it was. But rather than keep the dead animal and contaminate the fish they'd already caught, Captain Akira Tanaka told his crew to toss it back into the ocean. As they were swinging the crane over the deck, the rope slipped and the carcass landed at their feet. Surprised by what he saw, one of the men on board who had studied oceanography pulled out his camera and started snapping. He took photos of the creature and recorded its measurements as well. He even sketched out what he had witnessed, but his drawings invited a lot more questions than answers. The carcass had weighed almost 4,000 pounds and measured roughly 32 feet long. There had been four large fins on its side, a neck of about five feet long, and a six and a half foot long tail. Its internal organs had all been eaten out or rotted away, but there was still skin on its bones. They dubbed their discovery Nessie, based on its resemblance to Scotland's famous Loch Ness monster, and then they tossed it overboard. The photographer later hitched a ride on another boat and returned to Japan. As soon as he stepped foot on dry land, he used the fishing company's darkroom to develop his photos. He showed his findings to the owner of the company, who then outsourced analysis to local biologists. The photos weren't enough for any of them to identify it conclusively, but they had their ideas. A press conference was held by company executives to let the world know about their discovery. As a result, more scientists came forward with answers of their own. Ove Persson, a scientist from Sweden, determined that what the crew had found was nothing more than a dead basking shark. It might have been bigger than most others, but it wasn't anything unusual. According to an article in New Scientist magazine, further analysis of the evidence seemed to confirm their assumptions. When a basking shark decomposed, its lower jaw and fins were the first to go. What got left behind looked like a very long neck with a head on top. 
But not everyone agreed. Two Japanese professors had a much different interpretation of the evidence. To them, the animal in the photographs from the ship looked nothing like a shark, decomposing or otherwise. There were four well-defined fins, a long neck and a long tail. And the anatomical drawings seemed to corroborate that belief. Although no skin or tissue samples were taken, the pictures clearly showed evidence of red flesh and large nostrils on the front of its drooping head. Also, this carcass had been found floating 30 miles off the coast. Most dead sharks typically washed ashore before decomposing. The ones that didn't had never been found as deep as 900 feet under the ocean. The professors concluded that what they were really dealing with was a creature no one had ever laid eyes on, because it had gone extinct millions of years before. They believed, as crazy as it might sound, that the carcass dredged from the depths of the ocean wasn't a basking shark at all, but a prehistoric creature from the Mesozoic era. A plesiosaur. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.